are books written uh, that by, um, by men and women in the name of Christ that do nothing to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and to promote godly living. Um, one of those books, and I'm going to be actually probably calling out a, a couple of titles today that might upset a few of you. Um, and the purpose is, is not to um, slam any one author, any book, any podcast, but to encourage us to um, feed on the Word of God, not feed on um, truth that we don't know, or, you know, so-called truth. I think I told you the story of um, where when I was um, a stockbroker, I had that, the radio show every morning. Every morning I would do it, and I would listen ahead of time to Keith Wyman on KOA, and he would inform me um, as to what I should say on the radio. So I was, I was an expert. People would call in and want to do business with me because they heard me on the radio. And we've got a diet. Um, we've got a diet um, in the church, big C, worldwide, of a lot of garbage out there. There is a lot of garbage. You go to Barnes & Noble, you go to um, even a Christian bookstore, and you're going to find things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that are contrary to the power of standing in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit um, driving our lives, our conduct. So what's the purpose of this letter? The overarching purpose of this letter is to teach the proper ordering and conduct of the church. If you've got your Bibles, flip open to chapter 3, actually, verses 14 and 15, and I think it will be on the screen as well. And this actually is the center of 1 Timothy, and it describes the book. It describes what, why, why Paul is writing this book to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus and to us today. And he says this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. The theme of this book is how one conducts himself in the household of God. And the household of God is the church. And the church is not this building. The church is the people. And the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. If we stand for anything, we have got to stand for the truth that comes from this word and this word alone. Um, in Acts, um, Paul described the Bereans as one who would listen to sermons, who would read good strolls, listen to good podcasts back then, but then he said, I want, you to, I want you actually to examine it yourself and to see if it was true. Paul said about his own teaching. He says, don't take my word for it. I want you to examine it. I want you to search the scriptures and to see if it was true. So the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. And, and how are we to behave or conduct ourselves as the church? How are we to live? Those are a couple of questions that we should be asking. In a word, Paul calls it godliness. He describes the conduct or the behavior of the church as godliness. He uses that word godly or godliness um, over a dozen times in, the, in this letter to Timothy. And if you go to 3, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Paul says there is a mystery to godliness. There is a mystery to um, good conduct or behavior. And that's why there's so many books out there. It's because we're all wanting that silver bullet on how to be a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better employee, a better employer. And books are good. I'm a voracious reader of books. Books are good. 
But how do we know which books are good and which books are bad? He says in 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So Paul says there is a mystery to godliness. There's a mystery to behavior or conduct that glorifies God. And mystery doesn't mean that it can't be found. It doesn't mean mystical. It doesn't mean that it's something that needs to be uncoded. It doesn't mean it's something that you need a pastor or a priest or a pope to help you figure out. It means that it is hidden or it is, uh, it is veiled, but it can be found, easily found. The mystery of godliness is not explained or followed up with what to do, with what to, do to be godly. But what God has done in Christ, look at verse 16, chapter 3, the end of verse 16. There's six things that describe Jesus Christ. He doesn't go in and say, okay, um, the mystery, he doesn't say, great indeed, we confess it's the mystery of godliness. And then do this. Do this, don't do that. He says, he gives us six things about Jesus. He says he was manifest in the flesh. He was resurrected. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels, meaning that angels are in the spiritual realm. So that we would know it's not about simple morality. He said that, that the, the message of Jesus were, was proclaimed to the nations. It was believed on in the world. It was taken up in glory. You see, godliness does not necessarily mean how we conduct ourselves on Sunday morning. It does. But more importantly, how do we conduct ourselves? How do we behave, your, behave ourselves um, in the world seven days a week? It also does not mean goodliness. He didn't add a, another, uh, another O. Our godliness comes from our relationship to God, not from doing good. We should certainly do good. But doing good does nothing to um, gain us standing in God's kingdom. There is an underlying purpose, which we may miss, um, also in the book of 1 Timothy. So, so first and foremost, the purpose of the letter to Timothy is how the church should conduct themselves or behave themselves um, in the world. There is a secondary or underlying purpose as well um, to the letter to, to Timothy. And it's in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and I don't think I have this on the screen because I didn't give it to Lucas. It says this, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. On the deepest level, 1 Timothy is not only about the church behaving and about church order, but it's about the evangelization of the world. It's about a Savior who will save all who believe. Our doctrine and our conduct have everything to do with evangelism. Everything to do with evangelism. You see, when we are loving God well, when we are loving our brothers and sisters well, when we are living in the world and loving the world well, it enhances our testimony. It's when churches are splitting and Christian schools are splitting and Christian marriages are splitting, when we are not behaving in a manner that is according to his word, that it actually ruins our witness. 1 Timothy is, is a clear call. This letter is a clear call for the church to live out in tangible and practical ways the implications of the gospel. And this is going to be an awesome book. 
We're going to talk about things like prayer and women's roles and church leadership, elders and deacons. We're going to talk about church discipline. We're going to talk about caring for one another. We're going to talk about caring for elders. In that particular section of caring for elders, we're going to do a six-week sermon series on how to care for us. No, we're not. It's going to be one sermon. Um, we're going to talk about lasting riches. And the last thing for you to know, at the very end of 1 Timothy, Paul closes the letter off saying, grace to you. And that is the plural. That actually means grace to you all. This letter is not just written to Timothy. It's written to all of us. It's not just written to the elders and deacons. It's written to all of us. This is for us today, not only for them back in Ephesus in 64 AD, but for Windsor Community Church in 2017. And my prayer is that God would use this book in a real and tangible way to spur us on, to live lives that honor and glorify him, and that would be a sweet aroma of salvation to people that we come in contact with up and down the front range. Let's start with verses 1 and 2, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is Paul? Paul? Paul indicates that his command or his commission came from God our Savior. That, that Paul was personally appointed. He was personally commissioned like a soldier would be uh, commissioned to uh, military service. That he was commissioned to be an apostle. And the phrase, God our Savior, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, which repeatedly recalled the acts of salvation. Paul was implicitly saying, Timothy, whoever else, and whoever else reads this, what I'm going to tell you comes from our Savior God who backs up what he commands. And the additional phrase, and of Christ Jesus our hope, makes it even more encouraging. Because hope in the New Testament means certain hope. It means sure hope. It means a fully confident expectation of, a, of an as-of-yet unrealized fulfillment. Who's Timothy? We've got to know who Timothy is. Timothy is young. He's a young man. John Stott says he's probably in his mid-30s. He's not a teenager. He's not a middle schooler. He's not a high schooler. He is, he is probably in his mid-30s. Um, Paul says here, uh, he says in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you, Timothy, for your youth. And in 2 Timothy, uh, chapter, uh, uh, verse 22, he says, flee, Timothy, youthful passions. Timothy's young. He's also timid. He's timid. Not only was, was he young, but he's timid. So Paul says to him in, chapter, in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Timothy was a fearful young man. He was a fearful young man. And then, and then early back in Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16.10, Paul says this, When Timothy comes to you, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy needed encouragement, much like you and I need encouragement. He was young. He was fearful. He was, as we're going to see here, that he was frail. Timothy also appears to have a fragile constitution and a nagging stomach problem. He was probably gluten intolerant, I would guess. And, and Paul, Paul advised him in, in chapter 5, verse 23, he says, No longer drink only water. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So we can conclude that Timothy, by nature, was not a missionary commando. He was not a superstar in any way. He was like you and I. 
He was not a clone of Paul. He was timid. He was young. He was fearful. He had, he had physical ailments. This is, this is so hopeful. It's so helpful. Oswald, Oswald Chambers could well have uh, been referring to Timothy when he wrote the following. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence upon him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. Sometimes he chose to use somebodies, but only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. I just, I want to be a nobody used for God in his kingdom. And we don't, God uses people like you and I to further his kingdom. He's not looking for superstars. He's not looking for other Pauls. He's looking for, for uh, young people. He's looking for um, um, uh, shy, timid people. He's looking for all walks of people. But the point is, is that when we depend upon God, he will use us. We don't have to be superstars. We don't need to be seminary trained. In fact, you don't even have to know, uh, be able to list out all 66 books of the Bible. You don't, know how to, you don't even know how to, have to spell Timothy for God to use you. And Paul loved Timothy like a son. My true child in the faith. And all throughout Paul's other letters, he refers to Timothy in that type of, of um, just loving kindness as a father would, a loving father would speak to his son. And then finally, Christ Jesus. Three times Paul invokes the title. These are still in the first two verses. Christ Jesus or Christ or Jesus the Messiah in his greeting to Timothy. The title appears 12 more times, a total of 15 occurrences in 1 Timothy. The godly conduct that Paul will, Paul will demand is possible only through trust in, only through dependence upon, and strength from the atoning death and resurrection of the Messiah Jesus. That's the only way that we'll be able to live in a way that Paul is going to encourage us to live. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God. And uh, Paul's normal um, greeting was grace and peace, but he adds mercy. He adds mercy. And the added word mercy here carries the idea of God's special care for a person in need. The Old, uh, the Old Testament equivalent of this word is used multiple times in the Psalms with the idea of helping us in a time of need. This would have brought to mind the rich associations of the word um, help to those who cannot help themselves, help to the helpless. And Timothy was in a, in a helpless situation that would bring him to the end of himself. How beautiful this triple blessing was, the source of grace, mercy, and peace was and is the infinite resources of God. No matter how much God would give the young servant of the Lord, there would always be more. This was Paul's wish for Timothy, grace upon grace to equip you for your ministry, mercy upon mercy to attend to your distress, peace upon peace throughout your life no matter what's going on. And Timothy, like all of us, would need to depend upon the grace, mercy, and peace of God to teach and encourage one another how we ought to behave in the church of the living God. As we look at verses 3 through 4, we see Paul urging Timothy 
And, and we get the sense here that Paul had urged him once before. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You see, Paul urged Timothy before to stay in Ephesus and to charge certain people to not teach a different doctrine. We don't know when that was. The Bible isn't clear, so it's not important. And this is kind of a lesson all the way down through 1 Timothy, is that the false teachers are speculating on a lot of things that aren't important. You see, the speculators are doing really deep Bible studies, is what they might call it. And really deep Bible studies are important. When we study what is really deep in God's Word, rather than speculating on what isn't there. And what we don't know here is, is when Paul spoke to Timothy last. What we do know is that Paul spent three years in Ephesus establishing the church. And upon his last visit there, he gathered the elders of the churches and gave them this warning in Acts 20, verse 29 through 30. He said this to the elders. Of some of them, some of them now are false teachers. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, get this, these are people from the outside, this is, these are elders from among themselves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now here we are in 1 Timothy, and it's dreadfully true. The false teachers are on the scene, and they are speaking twisted things. And here we see that Paul urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus in order to do two things. To charge the false teachers to cease from, number one, teaching false doctrine. Two, from promoting speculation by devoting themselves to myths and genealogies. And what should they be promoting? They should be promoting, the text says, stewardship from God that is by faith. I read that thing like a hundred times. and What in the heck is he talking about? Stewardship from God that is by faith. What he's saying there is they should be teaching the, tr the clear truth laid out in Scripture on God's plan. That's what stewardship means, God's plan, and to encourage living according to that plan. That's what we're to do. We're to teach God's plan for salvation, God's plan for living in salvation, and we're to steward that. John Stott says this. He says, these false teachers were Bible speculators. They treated the law, the Old Testament, as a happy hunting ground for their speculations. And it's not so much that they set out to be heretical. They simply wanted to go deeper into the scriptures. They wanted to go beyond the simple writings and teachings or exegesis, if you will, of Paul. And they wanted to speculate on what is not known or revealed in God's word. And can I encourage us in all of our good Bible studies that are happening with the ladies, that are happening in community groups, that are happening in LTGs, is, is um, look for what God is telling us about himself in his word. One of our core pursuits at Windsor Community Church is encountering God in the word. Another one of our core pursuits is intimacy with God. And when we read God's word, there's really two primary purposes, to know him and to love him. To know him and to obey him. To know him and to know how to conduct our lives in subjection to him. You see, these false teachers did not set out to abandon the gospel doctrine that, is, that comes uh, by uh, salvation by faith alone. The false teaching results in speculations, which is unproven theories rather than the advancing the kingdom of God by faith in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
this is alive and well today. Speculation is alive and well today. Some of you might even have books on your bookshelf that are full of speculations. That's wasting time um, speculating and digging, digging, digging for truths that we're not meant to know and that we'll, that we'll never know. There's the passage of Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to who? The Lord. There, there are things that we're, that we're meant to understand, and there's other things that we're not going to understand this side of Jesus' return. Consider the incredible distortions that the number 666 has undergone to spell out the name of every international villain from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. A few years ago, the best-selling book, The Bible Code, a speculative and controversial interpretation of the Old Testament, claimed that an Israeli mathematician, mathematician um, Elijahu, it's not Elihu, Elijahu rips, what a, what, a, what a great name, Rips, because he's like rips the scriptures apart. That Elijah Rips has decoded the Bible with a computer formula unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination and the election of Bill Clinton. Everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter. Religious raising, period. Religious raising of of perfect children is another one, or, or restraining the aging process is another one. The problem is that these teachings and their systems will not deny, they don't deny the gospel outright, but they replace it. They draw our attention from what's most important. Paul's real concern is with the results of the false teaching. Paul addresses the content of the false teaching only in passing, but he focuses on the fact that true Christianity is evidenced by lifestyles shaped by the gospel. And folks, I don't know about you, but living this life in Christ is hard enough. It's hard enough to, to, um, to love my wife and to love my neighbor and to, um, to worship God with my thoughts and my eyes and my words and my actions. I don't have time or bandwidth to speculate on math equations that would tell me who the next president's going to be. I want to know how to love my wife. I want to know how to pastor this church. I want to honor the Lord in everything I do, and I'm not doing that day in and day out. The ultimate tragedy of false doctrine is that the stewardship, God's plan from God that is, a, is by faith is not promoted. They're not promoting God's plan. They're not promoting the, the, um, the growth of the kingdom. The church and especially its leaders, we have been given the responsibility, the stewardship of administering or managing the truth that salvation and Christian living are by faith in Christ. And folks, i got to tell you, the primary reason that we teach um, through books of the Bible, we ended on Job last week and we're starting on 1 Timothy today. And yes, we do a few series here and there. Uh, we did one on marriage. Um, we're going to be doing one on parenting, but it's to protect the word. It's to protect the word. Because we have, I have hobby horses. I could tend to speculate. We all can. Verse 5, 6, and 7, the aim of our charge is love. 
The aim of our, he said, Paul asserts the goal of our teaching, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What he's saying here is that contrasted with the false teaching that results in meaningless speculation, proper biblical teaching results in practical good behavior that is rooted in love. So you're never going to hear us from up here saying that you just need to do X. You just need to, to suck it up and behave a certain way. What we're going to say is this. What we're going to say is that, that Jesus died for you, that your life is no longer your own. And if you are struggling being kind to your wife, look at Jesus' kindness and patience to you. Respond that way in worship to God in loving your wife that way. You see, you see, all behavior is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in love. And this love comes from a pure heart, verse 5, informed by God's word and empowered by the Spirit rather than one filled with sinful desires. It comes from a good conscience rather than one laden with guilt. It comes by a sincere faith rather than pretense and hypocrisy. In verses 6 and 7, when, the, when these teachers swerve from love-saturated, Bible-informed, spirit-led teaching, they tend to get lost in vain discussions. They desire to teach the law when they don't have an understanding of the law, when they don't know what they're talking about. And worse yet is they're confident in talking about what they don't understand. There's nothing scarier than a confident teacher speaking with authority that does not have the proper understanding of God's law. And I'm not saying that uh, omniscient. Um, I don't know um, everything about God's word. Pat doesn't, Chris doesn't, John doesn't. But we know this, is that truth, all truth, is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can never move past the gospel. That the gospel is the centerpiece for all proper conduct and behavior, and it's the centerpiece for the church, and it's a centerpiece for God's word. You see, this type of teaching that where there's a confident teacher speaking with authority that does not have proper understanding, this kind of teaching promotes either legalism or license rather than motivated conduct, uh, uh, gospel-motivated conduct and behavior. You know what I mean by that? Here's what I mean by legalism. Legalism is stop it. Stop it. God's word says don't do it, so don't do it. Um, license is, is, hey, you know, we're all sinners, dude, dude, do this. Um, just, just go ahead and just, just keep living that way. It's okay. You're forgiven. And I've been in both places before. I operated as a legalist parent, and there was times where I operated as a, as a license-giving parent. And I've done it my own life. And the reality is, is that we should be right in the middle. We should be um, standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let the gospel um, propel our behavior. Verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Even though these false teachers don't understand the law, Paul says the law is good. He's not renouncing the law. The law, rightly understood, is in accordance with the gospel. There is a right and wrong way to teach and live according to the law. And these false teachers don't understand the law. Verse 9, understanding this, understanding this, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is now, is not laid down for the just. What does that mean? The law is not laid down for the just. Another word for just is righteous. 
Is he referring to that the law is, is not for those who have been justified by faith in Christ? We're going we're gonna to digress for a minute because I think this is important. This is, by God willing, this will set up the rest of the book as we teach through it the next uh, 10 weeks or so. There are three purposes of the law, constraining, condemning, and sanctifying. The first purpose, constraining. It's a deterrent to restrain evildoers. It's for preserving human society. Can you imagine our society without any laws? The law restrains evildoers, especially by fright and shame. It restrains them from daring to do what they want to do. So protect the community. I want to go down I-25 110 miles an hour. I want to. And I did that once. It doesn't turn out well. Don't ever do that. Really. I forget there's teenagers in here. I mean, it is not good. And it doesn't honor the Lord. The law acts as an external deterrent while leaving the heart unchanged, though. So parents, you need to parent with the constraining law. It is good to have rules in your home for the protection of your kids. But know that that, that alone, that does not change the heart. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it doesn't change your heart. The second purpose of the law is the condemning law. It is punitive. It's there to condemn sinners and to lead us to Christ. It involves spiritual guilt and judgment. Paul experienced this, and he described it in Romans 7. The law hammered Paul down. If if you're in Christ, the law hammered you down so that he might see his own sin and open himself up to the gospel. It's a tutor. The law is a tutor to Christ. Martin Luther said this, that the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings, for it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and wore down, so, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring, Jesus Christ. It is in this sense that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The third purpose of the law is sanctification. It's for the believer. The law, brothers and sisters, is for you and I as well. It's for the conduct of the believer. It's, a, it's for the direction of the church. The law is the best instrument both to teach us the Lord's will and to exhort us to do it. It's in joyous obedience that, the Christian, free, that Christian freedom can be found. You want to be joyful? Understand what God's word says about holy living, how to be holy like God is living, and and ask God to help you live that way. And do it to honor and worship him, not to get anything back. And you and I will be the most joyful people on the planet. The reason that we're not joyful is that we, we throw tantrums because we don't want to live in the unfair way that God asks us to live. And when we live this way, this is our spiritual worship. So the question is, as to which of these three purposes is Paul referring to in this letter here? All three functions of the law relate to lawless people, unmasking and and, and judging them, restraining them and correcting and directing them. It's only because of fallen human beings that we have, because we have a natural tendency towards lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We need the law. As believers, we need the law. The point in verse 9 is that the law is not just is not for the just, the righteous, but for lawbreakers. 
It cannot refer to those who are righteous in the sense of being justified, since Paul insists elsewhere that the justified do still need the law for their sanctification. Nor can it be taken to mean that some people exist who are so righteous that they don't need the law to guide them. In a word, the just here, the righteous in this context means the self-righteous. The fundamental principle that the law is for the lawless applies to every kind of law. For example, the reason we need speed limits is that there are so many reckless drivers on the road. The reason we need boundaries and fences is that it is the only way to prevent unlawful trespass. The reason we need civil rights and race relations legislation is in order to protect citizens from assault, discrimination, and exploitation. If everybody could be trusted to respect everybody else's rights, laws to safeguard them would not be necessary. The same is true of God's law. Its prohibitions and sanctions relate to the lawless. And Paul proceeds at once to illustrate the principle of the law for the lawless with 11 examples of law-breaking. The first six words he sets in pairs, they appear to be more general than specific, and the next five are very specific. And he says this. He says, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. I just want to make just a really quick comment there that's not in my notes, but I just feel prompted to, because I've been reading so much on this, is that um, it says um, men or women who practice homosexuality. You see, same-sex attraction is not a sin. It is when you act on it. Just like um, that, that um, we are, as men, as most men, we're made to be attracted to a woman. That's a, that's a natural, I'm attracted to my wife. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. The bottom line is, is that, that um, he mentions that, he says, men who practice homosexuality, not those who struggle with it. 10b, verse 11, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel is literally healthy doctrine. It's life-giving doctrine. And he mentions a description of it. It's got to be in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound doctrine flows out of the gospel. It never moves away from it. The gospel is the ultimate repository and expression of healthy teaching. Anything that moves away from it or dethrones it as the centerpiece of the church is diseased and dangerous. The gospel is especially good news when it's set against the backdrop of the bad news of humanity's gross sinfulness. The gospel that was entrusted to Paul, the gospel that was entrusted to us here at Windsor Community Church is the only answer to the dark, impossible, sin-sick pathology of the human heart. All healthy, life-given theology accords with this glorious gospel of grace. The good news is that Jesus died. And he died for the lawless and the disobedient of which you were one. 
He died for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. He died for those who strike their fathers and mothers. He died for murderers, the sexually immoral. He died for men who practice homosexuality. He died for enslavers, liars, perjurers. He died for you and me. And when you see that Paul's deepest concern is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, his digression here, as it seems like in verses 8 through 11, makes sense. These errant false teaching elders had abandoned the outward proclamation and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they turned inward speculating on myths and genealogies. May that never be true with us, brothers and sisters. We get to celebrate communion today. And um, in the reality of communion... is what Jesus came and accomplished for you. That you and I were ungodly and unholy and enemies of the cross in real and profound ways. Even if you are relatively good in comparison to your neighbor, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. that you are no better or no worse than the vilest sinner that you can think of. I think of the football player that just hung himself, Hernandez. That he died a suicide in a cell. Horrible crimes that he committed. And you and I were no less deserving of eternal separation from the Father than Hernandez was. I don't know the state of his soul. And what we celebrate here is the good news. Gospel means good news. The bad news is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, in his mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So as you come up to take the bread and take the, the juice, um, just uh, bring it back to your seats, and, let's, uh, and I'll come back up, and let's partake together. Uh, as a church, standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
on the night before Jesus would be, was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Drink this as often as you remember me. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you um, came to seek and save the lost. I thank you, Lord, that, um, that many here have been found. It's not that we found you, you found us. In fact, you're the hound of heaven who chased us down. And we praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that as we um, remember and continue to remember your sacrifice, um, your perfect life, your uh, brutal death, Worse yet, um, the Father's wrath being poured out on you so that we would never have to endure his wrath. God, we thank you that, um, that we live here on this earth as your body, that we are the body of Christ. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, empower us, that you would teach us and encourage us to be men and women who desire to, um, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to conduct ourselves in a way that is honoring to you and glorifying to you because of who you are and what you've done, not to gain anything at all. So, God, would you, I pray, I so boldly pray, God, that you would expose um, um, people in this body that um, have, um, I don't know, I guess we're all in that place at some level that there's, there's sin that we are practicing or walking in. And I just uh, pray, Lord, that you would be convicting people right now to um, not expose, that's the wrong word, but to convict of sin and to give a desire to want to live lives in accordance with your will. So God, would you do that with each of us, Lord, for your glory and for the effective proclamation of the gospel. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.